Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Click, pay, and download instantly. Welcome to the podcast. So you know how these podcast ads go, right? We read a spiel, blah, blah, blah. We give you a promo code for a discount, the end. But this one is a little bit different because this ad is for Honey and Honey ad doesn't just give you one promo code. A Honey ad gives you millions of promo codes. That's right, millions of promo codes in one ad. I've actually used Honey and I've saved so much money with it. I used it yesterday, in fact. Kaoni, my son, was buying something online. We have our Honey browser extension installed and when we came to check out, a little pop-up came on the screen and said, hey, would you like to have Honey find you a promo code for this? And we were able to save like five bucks. You know, I know some people have saved like hundreds of dollars. It scours the internet for coupon codes that work with sites. And guess what? It's completely free, which is crazy. So when you shop, no matter where it is, Honey will automatically fill in the promo code box for you at checkout, but it's not just gonna fill it with one. It fills out with all of them that that exist and, and sees which ones still work, which ones don't, and it gives you the best one. Right. Plus, they know where to look for promo codes. And, and it, I mean, you could do this automatically, but why would you? It's like getting a million promo codes from just one little podcast ad. So, yeah, it's awesome and it will save you money. There's no better reason to get it. And you might have heard it on other people's channels. And I honestly didn't believe it was this useful until I tried it myself. And yeah, it's it's absolutely great. All right. So get all the promo codes Honey can find at joinhoney.com slash SPI. That's joinhoney.com slash SPI. Quick install, it'll find those coupon codes for you. One of my favorite things that happens as a result of this podcast is a podcast listener or a fan of the show or a member of SPI Pro or somebody who's within our community who says, you know what, Pat, I noticed that you haven't really talked about this much, but it's so, so important. Can you at least... Think about it a little bit more and talk to your team about it and see if there's anything we can do about it. And I love that because, and obviously that sounds very general. And the reason why that sounds very general is because it happens a lot and, and we appreciate it. You know, we're always trying to improve and how do we know what to do or how to improve if it wasn't for those who are within our community who speaks up? And today I wanted to highlight one of those community members. His name is Dustin Backey, B-A-K-K-I-E. He's at Dustin Backey on Twitter. He's talking about some really important stuff. You know, he started his online journey talking about creating effective teaching and course design. He's helped a lot of teachers, especially through his YouTube channel. You can find it at Dustin Backey One on YouTube. And he has a lot of really popular videos that have helped teachers, especially during COVID, with how to effectively use Zoom, how to create really good curriculums online. And that obviously bleeds over into entrepreneurship as well. But one thing that he's now focusing on, he's had like a pivot or an epiphany, if you will, to serve more by doing the following, by helping creators like us create accessible online content. Well, what does that mean? Well, it refers to the accessibility of content, our content to all people, regardless of disability type or the severity of a particular impairment, for example, right? He fosters and wants to normalize 
inclusive digital communities. And I love that. And I think that's so important, especially because if you've heard this show for a while, that we've been very, very much focused on inclusivity. We've been very much focused on building community. And of course, we want those things to be together. We want accessibility. We want people who have no matter what condition they might have, the ability to still absorb this content to benefit from it and and use it. And so today we're talking with Dustin because I think a lot of us creators, we know that, yeah, it should be like that, but A, how, and B, sounds complicated, but it's not as complicated as it has to be or we make it out to be. So sit back because we're gonna learn something very important today that likely you haven't heard anywhere else. And these are my favorite types of shows, ones that bring new things to light. So let's cue the intro, here we go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he's the podcaster with the most random facts shared about him, Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 315 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Today, like I said, we're speaking with Dustin Backey. You can find him on Twitter at Dustin Backey, B-A-K-K-I-E, his YouTube channel, Dustin Backey One on YouTube, and thehitlab.co, which is where he teaches teachers and now is also focusing on creating accessible online content. Let's get into it right now. Here he is. Dustin, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm happy to be here, Pat. You know, I think everybody who's listening to this kind of already has an idea of what this episode is about. If you could give people who are listening a one or two liner teaser about what we're about to talk about and why it's so important, why don't we start there and then we'll go into your story. What this episode is really about is bringing a little bit of awareness and education on the accessibility of digital content, specifically digital courses, and the steps that we can easily take to improve the accessibility of our courses. So what does accessibility actually mean? What happens if we don't take care of this, for example? So what accessibility is, and I have a really great example that I'm hoping to draw a little bit on your architecture background here to help me out with, but we we kind of think of accessibility. One of the biggest examples that comes to mind is a wheelchair ramp, right? You build this big, beautiful building, and then all of a sudden you go, oh, shoot, there are some people who can't access this. So what do we do? We put a wheelchair ramp in. But Pat, if you were going to design a building that from the start didn't need one, what would it look like? It wouldn't have those ramps. It would be accessible to everybody. So you might have everything on the ground floor. You may have wide doors, all the main services, ground floor level, right? So it's universal. And does anyone not benefit from that? Like, does that hinder anyone? No, no, everybody benefits. But the funny thing is nobody really talks about it. They're like, it just works. It just works. And it works for everyone. And that's that's kind of the difference between in our field, we have this term accessibility versus universal design. And so accessibility is like adding the ramp afterwards. It's good, right? It's it's good. We're giving access to a certain group of people. But if we can design from the start for everyone, everyone is served and everyone benefits, not just a small group. 
See, this is interesting because now it's like, okay, well, we use all these platforms that we can't control the design of. So it almost feels like we have to find ramps to put everywhere. And we're going to dive into all this today. So that's kind of a little bit of a teaser. Thank you for setting that up, Dustin. But why don't we go back into your story a little bit and how you got so passionate about this. You had reached out to me on Instagram, as I had mentioned in the intro for everybody, and really inspired me to have you come on and talk about this. But I know this didn't come out of nowhere. Tell us a little bit about the origin story of Dustin and this whole thing here. I teach at Chico State, which is a California state system here in Chico, California. And I've been there for about a decade and got really started to be known for innovative and like inclusive classes. And it started with the passion for like wanting to teach well and I actually was very blessed and I got my teaching offer straight out of grad school. So I was really fresh on like what goes into good teaching and being frustrated with certain instructors and looking up to others. And so I wanted to do as great of a job as I could. And that kind of took me down this road of effective teaching. And in June of 2019, we were actually expecting our second son and everything was great. Clean bill of health on all the doctor's appointments. Everything looked wonderful. He was he was due July 1st. And um, Pat, I know you have two kiddos and you probably remember the days that they were born and your wife saying, this is it. You know, like, all right, they're coming. It's amazing how they know. And so we're about a month ahead of time. I had just finished taking a day. We're like, let's get the baby room ready. We moved our older son to his first like big boy bed, a twin bed. I had built it on the floor like Montessori style. And my wife's like, he's coming. And it's a month early. And so we're like, uh oh, but the birth went great. It went really smooth. And they, they, there's this moment where they take the baby and they like hand them to mom. And we see this look that the nurses give each other. And we, my wife and I, Kaylin look at each other and we're like, okay, well, what's going on here? And they just kind of give her Bowden, our little boy, and they leave and no one's there for like five minutes. And we're like, what is going on? And then the nurse comes in and asks her to stop breastfeeding and leaves again. So we're like, okay, something is going on. And so what it turns out is Bowdoin was actually born with Down syndrome and had some medical complications going on with that, that within about four hours, we were in a helicopter going to Sacramento for immediate surgery. And over the next year, Bowden was hospitalized nine different times. He had five different surgeries. So you can imagine what that looked like just in terms of holding down a job and providing for our family. But we got thrust into this world of diverse learning. And over the last year and a half, I was like, okay, I need a way that's going to support Bowden and his needs going forward what are those going to, what's that going to look like? And so I started thinking like, how can I take my teaching expertise outside of higher ed? And I started learning and learning and learning and trying to support higher ed teachers. And as I was learning, I was like, where is all of the effective teaching, accessible teaching and inclusive teaching discussion? There's, there's a good amount of inclusive teaching, but effective and accessible in the entrepreneurial realm isn't talked about a lot. And in higher ed, we have whole departments and suites of tools and everything on how to do this and training. And so I started asking people, I was like, hey, what accessibility considerations are you taking? And they're like, none, we don't know where to start. What 
what do we even do? Or it seems like it's insurmountable. Those are the two things I hear. It's so much work and I'm bootstrapping this as it is, or I don't even know where to start. And that's where I realized there's a severe lack of discussion around effective teaching and accessible content design in this digital course realm. And I founded the HIT Lab, the High Impact Teaching Lab, to really make a change there and bring accessible content to digital course creation. Wow, what a story. And, and Dustin, where can people go check out the HIT Lab if they want to go and check that out right now while they're listening or get more information? Yeah, it's just thehitlab.co. Thehitlab.co, cool. Yeah, H-I-T lab.co. And I just kept thinking, Pat, I was over the last two years of raising Bowden with Down syndrome, he is so smart. We get told all these limitations that he's going to face. And yet the intelligence that is there, it just looks different. His learning looks different. It takes a bit more time. It takes a bit more repetition. It takes a bit more simplicity. But the understanding is there. The learning is there. And so it's all about the approach of how do we go about making this content available and not just assuming that everyone needs the exact same thing. Yeah, so let's talk about this. Actually, my first question relates to, because, you know, as an architect, and I appreciate the architecture sort of analogy earlier. It does feel like it is because there's a whole mess of laws and titles that we need to sort of abide by. Are there anything like that? Is there anything like that online right now for people building websites, creating podcasts or whatever content medium or platform? So there's kind of a couple of different approaches here. There is that legal approach, and I am not the expert on the legality of running a business and selling it there. And so I just want to be clear on that in terms of there is a lot that goes into it. But my understanding of platforms like Podia and Thinkific and that kind of stuff is they have to meet a lot of those accessibility guidelines legally as it is. So if you're hosting a course within them, you're meeting a lot of the legal guidelines. My expertise is like you as the content creator, Pat, what could you do to better serve a wider audience and even your current audience in the form of effective teaching and accessible design? There are small things that we can do to improve just the general accessibility of our content. Okay, let's go through them. Where do we start? Where I'd like to start is, again, thinking about how we how we like to learn. And I wanted to ask you, what's your best way to learn? Or how do you like to engage in your content that you're learning? I learn by seeing somebody actually do the thing that's being taught. I'm not a textbook person. I'm more of a science lab, kind of get my hands dirty kind of person. Yeah, absolutely. What about Kaoni? He's very much the same way. He likes to take things apart to understand them. And then, you know, sometimes he's able to put them back together. Sometimes not. But that's how Kaoni likes to learn. Kai is more of a storyteller she she, and, and story listener. She loves to hear stories and understands sort of characters and how they progress. She can empathize with those who are within certain scenarios. And she learns really well that way, too. Um, all of it's visual, however, which then obviously begs the question, well, what about the visually impaired? And I'm sure we're going to get into the, those kinds of things. But those are how my kids best learn and educate themselves. Yeah. And so the point that I'm trying to make is even our typical learners, your typical audience learns in a really diverse way. So if you are offering them this course or this service and you're trying to deliver on a promise, you got to understand that 
everyone, not just the margins, learn differently. And so a couple of things that are really easy ways to at least take steps towards accessible content. And it's a deep well, right? It, you can go down that rabbit hole for a really long time. And I really believe in what what's something you can start doing today that's going to better serve a wider audience. And we like to think about content needs to be beautiful, right? As I've been going through establishing my business, they say, hey, make a lead magnet, make it your brand colors and all these like beautiful things that are are great. But really, that doesn't matter to a screen reader. So if you're trying to have your document read, none of that matters. And so the idea of a content and where you can start with the content is simply a nice, clean, plain Google Doc. And what you'll want to do is you'll want to use one title, one heading, and then nest headings appropriately, put alt text for images, and set your heading rows for tables. And this is like the Pareto principle. Doing those small things are going to take you like 80% of the way to serving a really diverse audience. And so what this does is it creates a nice, plain, easy to use PDF. And what you can actually do, there's a free tool for Google Chrome. I'm going to be really advocating the Google suite here because they've done a lot of stuff. The free read and write for Google Chrome. It's free. It's an add-in and you can listen to it. So make a plain PDF, install free read and write and listen to the screen reader. Close your eyes and say, okay, could I understand that? And if so, that is just a huge step towards a more accessible content. And then now that you've got your content polished and ready to go, stylize it, make that beautiful free lead magnet. And when someone signs up for it, send them both, send them the accessible version and the stylized version. And it didn't take that much. If when you start with that universal design, you start by making something that everyone can access and then polishing it, it goes a really, really long way. I love that. So this is written content that number one is going to be a lot easier to read just in general for everybody. I think I love this because it kind of structures things the way we should be writing and, and typing and publishing online. But then in, th th this is so easy, it seems, that it's like, well, why why isn't this something? Wh why, do, why don't you think people do this? Is it just, is it just awareness or how, how do we reduce the friction as much as possible so, so we do actually do this? I, I think a lot of it is awareness, Pat. We have this content wave that's happened with the pandemic that the idea of accessibility is starting to come to light because in the last year, we've had a flood of content, people taking businesses online and we have Zoom meetings and more documents and all sorts of stuff. And so it's really highlighting the inaccessibility of a lot of this. And like you said, if you just start with the small things like a nice outline. You're planning out your content. You're flushing it out, which is good practice for you delivering good content anyway. But what happens is you people never share that. They say, oh, this is the behind the scenes like Google Doc outline. Export it. File save as PDF and just make that piece accessible. So I think a lot of it is awareness and education when thinking about my company on how I want to serve this area. 
I really tried to identify that there's really three needs. There's education. There's the need for education. So what is inclusive and accessible design and why is it important? And that's, you know, kind of what we're doing here, what I'm doing on like my Instagram and YouTube. So getting just the idea and the education out there. And then there's the training. So how do we do it? So training and service and even service as in content remediation. There is actually one company in the world right now that does content remediation for outside sources and they charge $15 a page. So what I just told you in those simple things that you could do on your Google doc, they charge you $15 per page. I mean, there's a business opportunity right there. There's a business opportunity, but this is stuff that I think a lot of people trying to start businesses. And I mean, you're more the expert here on this, but it's a lot. It's learning a new skill set. It's learning these business techniques. It's these huge checklists. And we get focused on this final product, this beautiful digital course or this beautiful PDF download. And so that's where we're working towards. And no one is saying, flush it all out in a nice, clear outline and then save that outline as your accessible version. It can have all the same information. Yeah, I think as as long as you put it into your systems, right, it just becomes a part of the way you do what you do. And that makes complete sense to me. And there's another service that I wanted to let people know about, Pat, actually, with these Google Docs is it's called Grackle. So like the bird, GrackleDocs.com. This is a G Suite add-on completely free to use as well. And this will actually do accessibility checks for your uh, Google Docs, your Google Slides, and your Google Sheets. And so what you can do is if you want to take it one step further than the suggestions I mentioned earlier, you could install Grackle Docs and just do a run. And it will tell you exactly. It's going to check about 22 different things for a Google Doc. And it'll say you met it or you didn't. And if you didn't, it'll tell you how to meet it. And it could even do some automatic rearranging for you. So this might take you five minutes once you're done with something. So the time, the biggest argument here is I don't have the time to make a copy that works for everyone. If you start there and use tools like Grackle and Google Docs, it's really easy to do that. That's awesome. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with us. We'll put all the links to all this in the show notes, of course. So this helps us on the blog and text front. There's other kinds of content, obviously, that people prefer to consume. And especially recently with the rise of podcasting and such, why don't we talk about audio? Do you focus on audio and help audio podcasters out in terms of accessibility as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I was hoping you were going to ask that. And if not, I was going to bring it in. But audio is another one that, again, it's all about your systems. It's all about how you approach it. And if you approach it with the right idea in mind from the start, It's actually pretty darn easy. And I would actually say that depending on the tool you're using, video and audio content is perhaps even easier to make accessible than like a PDF or a doc. What I encourage people to do is you can film and edit your videos and your podcasts like you would normally. And if you're making a video, every video editor out there offers an export audio. Export the audio and in your digital course, put it right next to the video. And just an example of how this is beneficial, even me, what I do is I've been taking this course and I download the audio versions and listen to them while I'm at the gym. And then when I come back home to actually work on the content, 
I go through the pieces that I need, but I digested the content while I was at the gym audio. Then I use the video as like a support piece going through it. So it's again, giving different avenues for your learners to really engage with your content and get the most out of it. So you have this audio file now to go along with your video file. So transcripts are the next question. That's where it kind of gets tougher, but it all depends on like your price range and your tool rev.io you've probably mentioned, or you probably know, or your listeners probably have heard of it's done for you. It's fast. It's professional. It's accurate, but it does cost money. I think it's like a dollar per minute or dollar 25 per minute. The last time I checked. Yeah, it's pretty pricey. We, we use it, but it's very accurate. It's done by humans on the other end, but I'm sure you're going to mention some of the more automated tools that one could use, right? Yeah. So one of the more automated user-friendly tools that I personally really like is Descript.com. They just released a big one. You can do full video and audio recording, editing, and processing all within their tool. And they do have a nice free tier that is like, I think about three hours per month for free. And don't quote me on that because I don't remember it off the top of my head, but it's right around there. And so if you're building a digital course, three hours of content may get you a good module or two, depending on the depth of your course. And what it does is it actually brings up your transcript. You just load your audio or video file in. It brings up your transcript like a word or a text file. And so you can read through it and make edits on it like you're editing a Google Doc or a Microsoft Word Doc, which is one, amazing. But two, you get these nice, clear, beautiful transcripts that are accurate. And it does take a little bit of legwork on your end, but these tools are getting more and more sophisticated and stronger. So I really love Descript because you get your audio, your video, and your transcript from it. And it's relatively pretty quick in terms of the effort that you, the creator, are putting in. I use Descript. I love it. And the team uses it as well. And it's getting more and more sophisticated. They have some other crazy things like the voice recognition tool and the ability for you to type out what you're saying after it learns your voice. It's a little scary, actually. But that's, that, that's beyond what we're talking about today. But yeah, so transcripts, it can be made easy. It can be using tools like Descript added into just the workflow that you've already have got for yourself. I like... I even have one more, Pat, if you've... Yeah, please. Go, go. This actually, this is breaking news. As of today, we're recording behind the scenes here, May 11th. But YouTube, just an hour or two ago, announced a new feature that they are going to allow you to edit your subtitles and captions like a doc, very similar to Descript, before you publish. YouTube does get some flack for whether or not those closed captions are accurate or not, but now you can see it as a full doc, do a quick read through, make the edits that you need to and export it. I was just looking at this about an hour ago. That's huge because for a while you could create a transcript or have a script and then upload it so it matched or you could kind of go in line by line and edit it, but it would take forever. But the fact that you can go in probably now pre-upload is what you're saying after it sort of processes. Pre-upload. Wow. And you can download it. So you can essentially, if if I'm reading this correctly, you could essentially use YouTube's AI to be your transcript platform for potentially even a podcast for free. Yeah, there, there's cool tools. Things are, we we are kind of at the front of of a wave of this kind of stuff. There's, uh, you're probably familiar with the company Masterclass. They just hired John Scott. 
he just created in higher ed realm for a learning management system called Blackboard, a tool called Ally, which kind of does similar to what I mentioned Grackle Docs does, where it scans all of a teacher's content and lets them know how accessible or inaccessible it is and gives them guidelines on how to fix it and that sort of thing. And so about a year ago, he just moved from Blackboard doing that to Masterclass. And so Masterclass is clearly behind the scenes working on something big in the accessibility realm for digital courses. And they're kind of one of the first ones that I've heard I love that because they they have the resources to find all the right tools and, and such to be able to hopefully pave the way for us to be able to follow suit, you know, I, I hope, which is really nice. So I'll, I'll definitely be paying closer attention to the, to them and what they're doing. And, and that that's really great. Do we have to worry about or does Apple, for example, for podcasts and Spotify already provide the things that one would need? I guess I guess it's all kind of built in and it kind of helps that it's already audio only and the transcript would help for those who perhaps are auditorially impaired. Yeah. And the transcript, Pat, I know you run two different YouTube channels. And I have a small one, right? I am I'm closing in on a thousand. And I have gotten questions saying, is there a transcript available for this video? Multiple times before I even started this this journey. And so people are looking for it. People want it even just with YouTube videos and whether or not they have some sort of documented disability, which is estimated anywhere between like one in five and one in 10 US adults. So you can imagine how many of your customers have a need for something like that, but they are, they are asking for it. And in terms of, I know you can link files and stuff for podcast notes. And even on your site, you can let your listeners know Thank that, you, hey, I, I really head over to the that. site to get all the transcripts for any of these, right? You can host those PDF downloads somewhere on your site on a dedicated page or within the page of each episode. I'm not sure if there's anything built in specifically to the apps themselves as like you could see a text version of it, but you can certainly host them outside of that in a different number of different ways. Uh, the last piece of content that we haven't hit is live video and what we can do for that. And again, Google coming to the rescue. Google recently enabled live captioning for anything in Chrome, any video. Google will live caption any video or audio playing in Google Chrome. So if you have Google Chrome, you can go into your settings and just enable it. So that is something that... If you are having trouble or you have customers who want this, you could let them know how to enable that. There's lots of YouTube videos. It will take 30 seconds to do. But there's also tools like otter.ai, which is the one that powers the Zoom closed captioning. The biggest pushback I hear when I talk about auto transcription is that it's not accurate. We are moving in the right direction. And the more it's used, the smarter it gets and the better it gets. And some subtitles are better than than none. That's my approach and philosophy here is like if we take steps towards those, you don't expect a f- the first podcaster to blow your SPI podcast out of the listener or out of the water, right? You don't say, hey, you're a new podcaster. I expect you to overtake me on your first launch. We We start somewhere, right? We have to work towards those gold standards. And so... A lot of these things aren't perfect, but they're better than nothing. Yeah. And, you know, for those who are worried about 
how it may come across if your transcript, for example, is not perfect. I always say, you know, before the transcript is shown, whether you are using tools like Fusebox.fm, which we've done a really good job on making sure the tools within that are accessible for those who are online watching or listening on your website. You can always say if it is going to be more auto-generated stuff, right before you add that transcript, you can say, hey, this was automatically created using, you know, name of tool here for your convenience. Apologize for any errors, but we provided this here to help out in case you need it. Then it comes from a place of service versus like, hey, here's our transcript. Hey, why isn't this perfect? I know a lot of us maybe move toward the more automated tools because they're a lot cheaper, they're a lot faster. And that's how you can get around the worry of, well, this isn't perfect. And I hope everybody listening by now can realize that, well, if you just try to be perfect the whole time, nothing's going to get done. And I think, like you said, better to have something than nothing. Yeah, I love that suggestion of a little like, hey, this was auto-generated. And, you know, maybe one day down the road, we'll have a the funds to get Rev.io. But until then, and it goes a long way. And I, I like to think that the people who really give it a lot of flack are, are kind of being a little overly critical, right? We we all know that information comes in a context of a conversation. And so if you're like, oh, that Hogwarts doesn't isn't supposed to be in that conversation. Like, you know, they're not referencing Hogwarts. It was probably a mistake, right? Um, yeah, Hogwarts came to mind. I recently did a test with uh, Zoom's auto-captioning where I kind of yelled random words at it and see that, or saw how well it did. And it was kind of a fun little one. To finish up here, again, thank you, Justin, for this. What can we all do to help spread the word for you and for everybody else out there who needs this? And I'd love to see who we might be able to get some help from within the audience, whether it's, you know, super proactive or just kind of, you know, sharing among others. When you meet others who have websites, for example, how do you best recommend we share this so that this becomes sort of worldly adopted and, you know, we give access to our tools, to our websites, to our software, to our courses, to everybody? One of the first things that I think would really go a long way, and it's simple, it's that we need to move away from this accessibility mindset to inclusivity mindset. Like I mentioned earlier, inclusive design benefits everyone, right? When you design for the margins, everyone benefits, whereas accessible design, certain people benefit. So first off, kind of moving that way and realizing when you think inclusive design, that includes accessible design. Uh, So there's that one. But two, just start learning about try some of those steps, try starting an outline in your process, like I mentioned, and maybe try out Grackle Docs and just see how easy it is to actually do this. There is one big piece that is a huge need in the community that I'm not equipped to do this. So here's a free business idea that I would love someone to take. But if you're a SaaS developer or software developer, we have these great tools like Descript that I just promoted as something to help content creators create accessible content. It's really not accessible to people who need those measures. Like people who need these content services, these things like Descript or Rev.io, these services that are out there, while those services help typical learners and typical people create inclusive content, they are not accessible to people who need those accessibility steps. There's very few things that are out there. So that is a huge, huge need for that. That is a way that it can go. But 
I just encourage people to, you know, I mean, personally, I'd love it if you followed me and my stuff and that's all what I'm talking about. But the thing is follow a diverse group of people, follow diverse learners, consult a blind guy was one of your regular income stream guests. Go follow his YouTube channel, see what he's talking about and just expose yourself to the different way that people or different ways that people learn the different needs they have and give some of these tips that I've given you a try because they're easier to implement than you might think. Thank you so much, Dustin. This is hugely important. I hope more people listen to this and spread the word for you. Where can people go to follow your work? And I think everybody should. So I know it's thehitlab.co. Are there any other places? The other place that I'd send you to is the Hit Lab's YouTube channel, which is just youtube.com slash Dustin Backey one. I had to throw the one in there. So that's B-A-K-K-I-E. One. Yeah, that is the YouTube channel. And on there, I've got little like tutorials on how to enable auto captioning and do a lot of the things that we've mentioned here. Awesome. Dude, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you for sharing your story with us. It's very inspirational. I think it's going to help a lot of people. And I mean, it is it is helping a lot of people. Thank you, Pat. I, I really appreciate that. All right. I hope you enjoyed that realization that perhaps something new that you haven't heard of before or a new focus that perhaps you should have in your business, especially if it starts to become something that we might be leaving people out who shouldn't be left out. So I'd highly recommend you check out Dustin and there's likely, depending on the impairment and the condition, a number of people out there in this world right now. And I'd love for you to tell me who they are if you'd like to share on Twitter a person who's helping others with disability, with digital accessibility with content consumption, with inclusivity here. I'd love for you to hit me up at Pat Flynn and use the hashtag session 515. Again, session 515. That'll be the hashtag so we can all share and learn more. And I wanna thank Dustin for coming on. He brought this to my attention as far as, you know what, Pat, you haven't talked about this ever and no one else does might I be able to spread the word and actually start a conversation, right? And, you know, Dustin didn't give us all the solutions and there's a lot more questions. However, this at least starts the conversation and that's that's really important, right? We want everybody to be included. So thank you so much, Dustin. I appreciate you and we'll link to everything in the show notes, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 515. And again, hashtag session 515 on Twitter so we can continue the conversation there. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. And I look forward to serving you on this follow-up Friday episode. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss that and all the other great content coming your way. Thanks so much. Take care. I appreciate you. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. Also, today's show is sponsored by AppSumo, the leading digital marketplace for entrepreneurs like you and a great way to get your product in front of over 1 million entrepreneurs, founders, and small businesses. So here's what's going on. They're giving away their entire $1 million Black Friday marketing budget to creators like you. If you have an ebook, an online course, templates, or any other digital products, this is for you. 
You list your product on AppSumo between September 15th and November 17th, and the first 400 offers to go live will receive $1,000, the next 2,000 will get 250, and everyone who gets listed gets entered to be one of the 10 lucky winners to potentially receive $10,000. So go to AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn to list your product today and cash in on this amazing deal. Again, AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn. Link in the description as well. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Wednesday, October 13th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Emily Flippin. Good to see you. Hey, good to be here, Chris. It's been a while. It has been a while. Um, we've got enterprise software, we've got video software, but we are going to start today with the biggest of the big banks. Third quarter profits for JP Morgan Chase were well above expectations. Revenue was higher too. Shares of JP Morgan down a little bit, but I don't know. It can't be because of the results, right? This seems like a pretty strong quarter. It's a pretty strong quarter for JP Morgan, although I will caveat that because the good quarter was supported by largely better than expected loan losses. That contributed around $1.5 billion to their bottom line. When you combine that with a tax credit, they actually didn't beat earnings as strongly as the market may suggest. So the earnings of $3.74 were greater than the $3 expected, but taking out these what should be considered one time credits, it was actually closer to meeting expectations, which maybe explain some of the stock uh, movement today. However, even accounting for that, this was a solid quarter for JP Morgan because uh, at this point, I think Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan have become uh, almost bellwethers for how the economy is doing as a whole. So seeing a lot of the bullish sentiment come out of this quarter for what they expect in terms of loan losses was actually pretty great. Yeah, I mentioned on yesterday's show when we were talking about Fastenal that um, Brian Hinman a couple of years ago told me Fastenal is is one of the top conference calls he always likes to listen to. J.P. Morgan Chase is another one that he mentioned when we had that conversation. He said that you know the big banks don't necessarily interest him a whole lot as an investor, but he always listens to the J.P.M. call because they're the biggest bank. More so than any other bank, they've really got their fingers on the pulse of so much of what makes the U.S. economy go. And as you indicated, Jamie Dimon. I mean, he's (laughs) most rooms that Jamie Dimon is in, he's the smartest person in the room. And he has no shortage of opinions. So it's always interesting to see what he's going to say when he comes out on these earnings calls. But from an economic standpoint, I mean, JP Morgan is the 
best capitalized bank in the United States, has one of the highest tier one capital ratios of the entire industry, which is all to say that when you look at what they expect in terms of how the American consumer is going to behave, it reflects less about what their credit profile looks like and more about what the world looks like today. And for that reason, it's sensible to kind of listen in and see, okay, all of these smart analysts that JP Morgan is encouraging and paying, what are they thinking about this loan credit profile? Because that itself is going to be really interesting to compare against the economy expectations as a whole. Shares of SAP are up 4% today. The German software company posted third quarter results that came with increased guidance, making it, I believe, the third time SAP has bumped up their fiscal year guidance. Um, in terms of the results themselves, it seems like if you're a shareholder, this the business is moving in the direction that you would want, which is to say more customers are moving to the cloud. And it's a slow transition, right? When we talk about the cloud transition for SAP, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I, I, I've been hearing about this for years, so why am I just now seeing it show up in their results? And I think there's an argument to be made that, you know, enterprise resource planning, it's a crowded space. Um, SAP is pretty far behind in terms of the cloud transition, but the backlog that they posted this quarter, or I should say pre-announced for this quarter, was incredible. Um, It's showing that they're really getting traction and shifting those legacy customers into their cloud-based application. So, their backlog was over 8 billion euros. That was up nearly 25% year-over-year, and it's really being led by their cloud version of their enterprise resource enterprise resource planning software. Um, The backlog for that system, which they call HANA, that was up 48% last quarter. Um, All to say, things are definitely pointing in the right direction, but I'll mention it again. Despite the clear acceleration, this is a business that has, in the past, only moved pretty slowly. They're one of the largest software companies uh, in the world today, and they're operating in a pretty crowded space. And more of that pie is being eaten up by competitors, whether they be large businesses like Microsoft or smaller ones like Workday or Salesforce. So competition, certainly something to keep your eye on. Yeah, it's it's one of those things for as big as they are, um, it seems like just from a, a brand equity standpoint, SAP is well-respected. This is not a stock that has really rewarded shareholders in a meaningful way over the past five years. I mean, it is solidly trailing the market. It's not an exciting business, I will say that. But even though they're not exciting, even though they don't grow at the rate of a lot of their competitors, which is probably why you're seeing that reaction from the market, they're still pretty financially sound. They trade at less than 30 times earnings right now, which sounds pretty lofty. And I will admit, you know, for a slow grower, it is still pretty heightened, but they also pay out a pretty steady dividend. So this is the type of business that if I owned, I would feel comfortable holding. But if I was investing for growth and I'm looking at the software industry, there are probably other companies out there that are going to grow longer and faster than SAP. Just a quick programming note. It's a short week for us on Market Fillery. We're off again on Thursday. So, please check out, if you're not already listening to Industry Focus, Motley Full Answers, Rule Breaker Investing with David Gardner, check those out. And thank you already to the uh, listeners who have sent in emails with suggestions for our upcoming Apropos of Nothing episode. Keep them coming, please. Market Fullery at fool.com. The stock of the day is Vimeo. The video software company said revenue in September was up 33% from a year ago. Subscribers are up. Shares of Vimeo up more than 12%. And that's great. But 
Vimeo went public in May, and the stock was close to $60 a share then. And even with the pop today, Emily, it's at 30 So it, I mean, I'm not rooting against Vimeo, but they're going to need a few more months like September to keep this thing going. No kidding. If you're a shareholder in Vimeo, today is a very little reconciliation for the pain that you felt over the course of the year. And while they have yet to report earnings, this is their monthly metric that they continue to publish month over month uh, that is providing this pop today. And as you mentioned, revenue up 33% in the month is pretty impressive. And I will say, if you compare to the numbers that they were posting in 2020, which is their comparable quarter, it may look less impressive. In fact, revenue subscribers and average revenue per user have all slowly trended down over that period, but they're still higher than where they were pre-pandemic. And Vimeo hasn't issued guidance here, so there is very little in the way of expectations heading into this quarter. Also worth noting that this is third quarter, which is typically a bit softer than the fourth quarter, when you see a lot of pull forward in terms of spending from corporations on things like video software. Ultimately, it's an interesting business. I, I struggle with the niche that Vimeo is carving out. Um, these numbers themselves don't get me super excited. So I'd, seeing the pop today, I, I kind of think to myself, maybe this was an oversold business headed into this report, but doesn't quite make me bullish on the long-term impact of Vimeo, especially when you think about the competition in the video software and collaboration space. The market cap of Vimeo is about $4.5 billion. Uh, if you assume that someone is looking at them and thinking, they do good work, we can do more for them if they are part of our larger business, then maybe they get bought out for five or six billion. That's still a whole lot more than Google paid for YouTube back in 2006. And at the time, that was seen as paying a lot for YouTube. Um, all of which to say, do, do you think Vimeo is a standalone company in three years. I mean, they, they, it seems like a good product. The, the stuff I've read about them points in that direction. I, it, it also seems like for as good a product as they have, it seems like $6 billion would still be overpaying. I tend to think the same as you, Chris, which is that this is probably going to be a business that, if it is acquired, is acquired at not the hefty premium that investors may be accustomed to. And the reason is, is because Vimeo, as so many investors are aware, um, tried to upsurp YouTube, right? They tried to change the landscape of the video streaming game and um, failed time and time again. So when Vimeo went public, which is a spinoff from IAC earlier this year, um, it was interesting to see how they've pivoted their business model, which is going to corporations and essentially providing a subscription-based tool for collaboration and video storage. And while that's appealing to many businesses, in fact, 60% of the Fortune 500 had at least one paying seat with Vimeo uh, when the company went public, it's still really hard to highly monetize. Only 1% of their total subscriber base was paying more than $10,000 a year on the platform. There Oof. was a need for this, but it was just not the need that you see where this business has a ton of pricing power. So the idea of snapping it up for six, seven, eight billion dollars I think sounds um, pretty challenging unless we see an uptick in their monetization potential. And with ARPU, average revenue per user, actually declining over time, or the growth of which declining over time, that makes me a bit worried. Yeah, and I get the enthusiasm when they went public. I mean, just if you go at the 
historical track record of IAC spinning out businesses, you know, on balance, those tend to do well. Um, but as you indicated, in addition to going public, uh, which is tougher than being part of a larger um, entity, um, they were also shifting their business model. Again, I'm not rooting against them, but it's just, it's just one of those that I look at and, and go, I don't know, there's not enough goodness there to to put this stock on my watch list, um, even though it's trading at basically half of what it did a few months ago. Um, last thing, and then I'll let you go. Where does um, this idea of this is a business that might get bought by someone else, where does, does that ever fall into like your top five list when you're putting together your pros and cons of, of a, a business that you're thinking about buying shares of? Or is that just like, if it ends up in your top five, then it's actually a, a, an indicator that you need to walk away? Not typically. Um, I, I I don't tend to think about acquisition as a very real investment thesis because, um, in reality, I think most acquisitions we see end up being something that uh, the end result is kind of a bloated business, right? The companies typically end up better alone than they did as part of a larger organization. Now, that's not always true. But when I think about the types of companies that I want to invest in, my mindset is, oh, I don't want somebody to come in and, and snap up this business. I want that business to operate independently for as long as possible. I think about um, Red Hat, for instance, when they got acquired by IBM. And the uh, say anger is the wrong word, but I guess disappointment that people felt when that acquisition went through because Red Hat was such an amazing business with a really unique team, um, cultural aspects that were unrivaled in the industry. I want to feel that way right, about a business before I buy in. So that, to me, ends up being a thesis that's much larger than just thinking, oh, well, maybe IBM will swoop in one day and buy these these companies. Yeah, when PayPal bought Zoom, not Zoom Video, but XOOM, Zoom, uh, the remittance company, um, I think anger is the appropriate word to describe Jason Moser's reaction when that <laughs> happened. And I think he's still angry about it today, or at, a, at, a, at the very least, bitter. So, yeah, that's, that's probably a better mindset. Like, you want to go in thinking, oh, I... I I so believe in the future of this company that I really hope nobody else snaps them up. Yeah, and to clarify, it's because you think the company is going to do so much better over the long term. So while that 15, 20% premium that you're getting on that single day when the acquisition announced seems like a great deal, uh, oftentimes the invest investment thesis is, is so long term that you're giving up what could be hundreds of percentage points in gain for a very short term bump. And so, yeah, I, I don't like seeing those little premiums. I think if you're an investor in Vimeo, you're buying into the idea that they have a platform that can be expanded into things like live events, right? Creating a powered by Vimeo platform. That's going to be bigger, right? If they're able to execute on that idea, then again, six to $8 billion in acquisition cash. Emily Flippin, always great talking to you. Thanks yeah, so much thanks for, for being having here. me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on The Motley Fool, may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review.
She is just weeks old, but has already undertaken a journey few will ever comprehend. How old is this baby? 40 days. At sea for nine hours before being rescued by the RNLI, her life now quite literally in the hands of the Home Office. Overcrowded inflatable dinghies packed with men, women and children making their way across the English Channel, seeking a new life in Britain is nothing new. Despite the pandemic, Brexit and the Home Secretary's Borders Bill, people continue to risk their lives in small boats on the dangerous waters. Since the start of 2020, more than 25,000 people have done so, including this baby girl. Her name is Ayan, born at some point during her parents' journey from Iraq. On arriving at Dungeness, she hadn't been fed for two hours, prompting concern among police and border force officials. But for her exhausted mother, there's just sheer relief. The worst is now over. Why did you risk her life to come across the channel? She said, because that country is for the life. The Dover Strait is one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. Our correspondents have reported from either side, documenting the stories of some of those migrants, including those who didn't make it. I advised them, please don't go by boat. It's not good, uh, really bad situation if you stay in water. Is enough being done to try to prevent the crossings in the first place? What are French authorities doing about it? And what impact are relations between the UK and France having on the issue? Welcome to the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan, as we examine the story beyond the headline. My colleague Adam Parsons and his news crew spent a few days earlier this month on the northern coast of France. That is empirical proof that migration is still happening between this coast and Britain. We've watched these people, about 40 of them, carrying a very large inflatable boat, putting it in the water, crowding onto it. They're now trying to get the engine working. And they've done all that in full sight of the French police, a unit of whom have been stationed on the beach. My name is Sophie Garrett. I'm the Europe News Editor based in Brussels for Sky News. And I'm Adam Parsons and I'm the Europe Correspondent for Sky News. You have witnessed, both of you, some pretty extraordinary scenes on the other side of the English Channel. On this side of it, we've um, all been witnessing, you know, the human misery and tragedy of the people that get ashore. But you saw the the numbers and the, and the reality of what it's like to actually embark on such a journey. What we've seen are some pretty extraordinary scenes. Um, I'll let Sophie talk about what she saw out in the channel, La Manche, Dover Straits, whatever you want to call it. I was on a beach called Ambletoos. And as we all know, over the past few years, we've filmed migrants and generally it's been at night operating in the shadows, quite difficult to get a picture of, of sometimes of what is going on. The idea normally, frankly, is that people smugglers want to keep these things out of the limelight. There's been an amount of subterfuge. What we saw on this beach on this morning was completely different. It happened in broad daylight. It happened in full view of the French police. uh, And it happened twice. And what it was was about 40 migrants on each occasion, manhandling a pretty large, uh, rigid, inflatable boat 
down a beach. We timed him on the second occasion. It took seven and a half minutes. So this is not something happening at, at, at light speed. And putting the boat in the water, crowding around it, jumping in, getting the engine started. It's, it's a fairly torturous process. But it happened where everyone could see it. There were dog walkers coming past. There were people who were just taking a stroll on the beach. And as I said, there were groups of police officers watching on. So this wasn't happening under cover of darkness. It was happening where everyone could see it. That, to me, was what was pretty extraordinary about this. And it happened on a day when a lot of people tried to make the journey from France to the UK. It was good weather. It was calm conditions at sea. We were pretty sure that there were going to be efforts journeys on that day what we hadn't foreseen was this extraordinary spectacle of of so many people involved in what was obviously a pre-arranged process of trying to get from this beach over to the UK and that secondary layer of the French police about whom so much has been said so many accusations in the past we have seen Sky News has seen them operating, getting involved in stopping these sort of migrant moves. That is, of course, something that under an agreement with the UK, they are supposed to make best endeavours to do. It is a complex political situation at the moment. But it was, frankly, amazing to see a group of officers standing by and not getting involved. Did you see French police? No, don't say anything, because the police is not like dangerous man from the other country. He don't say he respect me. He said just, just wait. If you can't wait, now bo- big boat come. They take you to there. It's a good life. I said thank you very much. And then Sophie, once they're at sea, just tell us what you've seen the the French authorities doing from their boats, and indeed, you know the conditions on board. Some of those tiny inflatables. Yeah, so we were also out at sea. We'd hired a private boat that morning and we had various bits of information to, to think that the boats would go off around that particular part of the coastline, which they did. And um, it just so happened that our boat was in the same bay that Adam's team were in. So we saw the same two boats going off from that beach within uh, about half an hour succession from one another. And it was astonishing. You see a boat that might be able to take comfortably 15 to 20 people in, and you have 40 in there. It's so heavy with the weight of people in there that the top of this boat is level with the seawater. And Friday morning, the the sea was relatively calm. The weather was clear. There wasn't much of a breeze. And setting off from the beach, it was relatively calm for them. But as soon as their motor started, the bucket started to bail out the water. And that's something that was really surprising. From from the get-go, they had to start getting the water out of the vessel. Tucked in amongst them are children, sat either on their laps, sat on the floor... And those children are sat on the floor, probably in that water. There's probably fuel around them as well. And they have a very small motor. And the skipper of our boat that we'd hired said that the size of the motors that were on those boats were not fit for purpose to take the weight of the people who were in that vessel. And that his main fear as we followed that first boat out into the channel was that at some point that motor would overheat, could possibly catch fire, but would certainly not be strong enough to get them to the UK coast. It may well have been strong enough to get them into UK waters, which um, with most of these boats, it did, and then they were picked up. 
But we followed both boats for quite a while and radio commed the um, French Coast Guard to alert them of our um, kind of map coordinates. And it wasn't long after they set off the coastline that a Navy Coast Guard helicopter came in and circled and came quite low down to us to make sure that they could see how many people were on board, probably having a look at how many of them were, were children, if they could, and what condition the boat was in. But at that point, both of the boats were going. But we saw um, a different story as we carried on, and we kept on going along the, the shoreline, but then went further out into the channel, and we saw more boats, more dinghies, one with 15 on, and then we came across something that even the skipper of our boat, who is a fisherman um, who goes out on those waters for pretty much two-thirds of the year, said that he just couldn't believe. And that was on the horizon. We, we saw a shape that just didn't quite look like a dinghy, but it didn't quite look like it should be there. And um, we approached it, and it was three guys on an inflatable kayak sat quite closely to one another without life jackets on, paddling around in a circle because they hadn't really coordinated their strokes on how to get out into the channel. And they were tired and they were lost. And um, we stopped, asked them where they were from. They were from Sudan and whether they wanted any help. And they said, nope, we're going, and gestured to a direction which they thought was the UK, we obviously contacted the lifeguard again and stayed with them for a little longer to make sure that they were okay and not in distress. And the Coast Guard signaled to us that they were on our, their way. So um, then we went. But it was a morning of so many boats and so many migrants out on that water. It's the busiest shipping lane in the world, full of really, really dangerous, huge tankers and cargo ships that would never see them if they're in the way. Well, let's address this head on then. There's uh, an implication and more than that in the UK that the French authorities aren't trying hard enough, quite frankly, to prevent people getting into the water in the first place. I understand fully, of course, that when they are in the water, then the preservation of, of human life has to come first and foremost. But so, Adam, it's back to you and those uh, police or gendarmerie or whoever they were uh, standing around just watching things on the beach. I mean, and it should be said, shouldn't it, that the French counter back, don't they? Well, you promised us £54 million. And we haven't seen a penny of it. Yeah, they did. I mean, the, the next day, we actually spoke to uh, Gérard Damana, the French interior minister, who, hours after we had broadcast these pictures, arranged a visit to the northern French coast. And as you said, the UK government said a while ago that it was giving a further £54 million to French authorities in order to bolster their defences against migration, to have more people, more resources to cover a wider area. And when we spoke to Mr Domina, uh, he very emphatically said that France has not seen a single euro of this promised payment. He was very polite in saying that he thought that it was just a, an accounting error and that uh, Britain was a, a country of its honour and a country of its word. But I think the implication was absolutely clear was don't go around telling everyone that you're giving us this money when we haven't had it. So A, they want the money. He said the number of interceptions had gone up significantly in recent months and that it could get to 100% if the UK handed over that money. I have to say personally, I'm a little dubious as to whether that is feasible. Because when you look at the agreement, yes, it's a significant amount of money, but anyone who's ever visited northern France knows that that coast undulates in and out. 
that it is very difficult to spot people at nighttime, even if you're using thermal cameras. And short of having some sort of naval blockade going up and down that coast, it's hard to see how you can stop small boats. I mean, Sophie was telling you there about this. Some of these boats are tiny. Even, frankly, the big dinghies are hard to spot on any radar. When you have people leaving on a, on a 200 euro kayak, very, very hard to spot these on radar, very hard to intercept these people. But the French maintain they need extra money in order to, to bolster their efforts. And it's come then back to the British to admit, yeah, that they are still negotiating this money. But I think that there is a disconnect probably between this idea that you can intercept everybody and the reality of anybody who goes to that long coast, particularly, I would say this, Derma, is the people who are organising people smuggling, people traffickers, we may consider them to be utterly reprehensible, but the simple fact is they know what they're doing. And it's rather like whack-a-mole. If you block off one route for them, they tend to find another one. Sophie, how long have you been covering the story for? Because I want to get some sense of, you know, is much, much more of it happening now? So I started covering this about five or six years ago from some of the camps in Dunkirk and in Calais. At that point, the the people traffickers, the the smugglers, as they're known, had already started to approach fishermen in the area and offered money to see if they would take groups of migrants over to the UK. And then there were thefts, quite a lot of thefts at that point of uh, these rib boats, these inflatable dinghies all along the North French coast. And that's when we started to see a real change in um, the tactics being used and the, the kind of crossings being used by migrants and the traffickers. Before that, it was mainly in lorries and in vans. But then all of a sudden came this push of migrants going over on these small boats and there being a real business for it in terms of organised crime. And at that point, there wasn't the police effort to cover that because they didn't have the manpower. Gradually over the years, whether that be pressure locally in terms of the increased numbers of migrant camps across the coastline or indeed pressure from the UK, they have definitely ramped up their efforts because of the numbers going across and the numbers of migrants in different pockets of camps all around the region. Coming up, are relations between the UK and France part of the problem? Adam, do you think there are, I mean, ultimately bigger political issues at play here? You know, the the bad blood over Brexit and in particular the Northern Ireland Protocol, submarines for Australia, you know, with the best will in the world, the relationship between the UK and France uh, wouldn't be uh, the entente cordiale too much at the moment. Do you think that does filter all the way down to police on the beach? I think it certainly is a prism through which we have to see this and it would certainly be a factor in Gerald Dominan taking quite a hard line because we have to be honest relations between the UK and France are not in a good place uh, now you have in both countries leaders who use uh, international relations 
as part of, of the chorus that they play to their domestic market, whether that is Emmanuel Macron in France, who has an election next year, whether that is Boris Johnson in the UK. So both of them are filtering the way they cover this for the home market. The French were very unhappy about the, the AUKUS submarine deal. They were pretty caustic in their criticism of Mr Johnson during Brexit negotiations. And remember that they are also furious about fishing licences and, and how they see the Brexit deal being managed. Those fishing licences, you might think, is that a terribly big deal? Well, it is. When you've got an election round the corner and when you are as focused upon elections as Mr Macron is. So I think you have to see it, whether you can drill that down into the real micro stuff. Of, is that why police officers were standing around watching on the beach? No, I don't think it was. I think that is because they were frankly confused, overwhelmed, outnumbered, didn't know how to react. But can you filter that down into a bigger picture of would Mr. Dominion, would the French police at the moment be busting every gut to fulfil an agreement when they think they haven't been paid the money they were promised? No, I don't think they would. And Sophie, tell me more about where these people come from. And just one thought to throw in there, just dating back, what, five, six weeks or so. Um, I'm talking about the evacuation from Afghanistan when uh, the message went quite clearly from several senior members of government to those Afghans to which we owe a duty of care to and a duty of residence to that couldn't get out of Afghanistan on those flights to make their way via third countries to the United Kingdom. Now, is that all going to be forgotten uh, just amongst the mass of people who were there? Or eventually, maybe even now, some people from Afghanistan are there who worked as interpreters, who helped British forces, who helped coalition forces, who actually have a right to at least be considered for residence in the United Kingdom. It comes in waves, really, in terms of the nationalities of lots of the migrants across northern France. And they do tend to stay in communities with their own nationalities. But um, the last year, I would say that we've seen many, many people from Sudan, from Ethiopia, from Eritrea. Also, lots of people um, within the Kurdish community, either from Iraq or from Iran. And we have met quite a lot of Afghans, but they have been on the move, let's say, for quite a long time. Getting to Calais, getting to Dunkirk is not a quick process. Leaving your country of origin to go to northern France will take months and sometimes years. Many of the people we've spoken to left their countries up to two or three years ago, just because it's in transactions, if you will, with traffickers. So, for example, we were in Calais three weeks ago. We met a group of young men from Afghanistan who'd left almost two years ago, and they had paid three transactions to people traffickers. The first transaction was to get them out of Afghanistan and to Turkey. So that would be going across Iran into Turkey. Then the next transaction would be getting them from Turkey over to mainland Europe. So we know that that's obviously from in boats over to some of the Greek islands where they're taken. And then they're on mainland Europe. And then the third transaction that they'll pay, usually to a third person, another people trafficker, is for that all-important for them journey, and that is from France to the UK. And each time it's huge amounts of money that they pay. Some have deals where they'll pay up front, 
some have deals where uh, funds will be released once they arrive in the UK and they confirm that they've arrived there safe and well, which puts a, another pressure on the, the people traffickers to make sure that they do arrive there safe and well. In terms of your question on could we see a wave of people coming from Afghanistan, I don't doubt it, but it won't be tomorrow. It might may well be in the next few months or maybe another year, 18 months. So this problem is not going away. And Adam, of the would-be refugees that you speak to, what, what answer do they have to this, which does puzzle so many people in the United Kingdom? If you are seeking refuge, if you are seeking safety, well then, you know, what is the issue with France? It is a European Union member, it has infrastructure, you know, there are no wars, very little poverty. Why don't you stay in France? Yeah, but to be fair, I mean, you could say that about the countries they've gone through before. So if you take the example of someone we spoke to there who had come as a Kurdish refugee, he'd gone through Belarus. Well, in order to get to France, he'd gone through Poland, uh, an EU member, gone through Germany, an EU member, and into France, another EU member. The bottom line is these people want to come to Britain. That's why they're in Calais. None of them, frankly, want to be in Calais. They want to be in Britain. Now, why? Well, for all the reasons that lots of people like living in Britain now. It's seen as a safe country. It's seen as economically prosperous. It's seen as having a strong rule of law. It's seen as having opportunities for labour. Now, there will be those, uh, and Gerald Darmanin is one of them, who think that migrants often see Britain as a soft touch. He thinks that it is too, quote, economically uh, attractive. I think by that he means that it's easy to get a, a job in a grey market or perhaps it's easy to get a benefit. But I think the flip side is also you look at somewhere, well, not just London, but cities across Britain are pretty multicultural places. They have communities. You take Sophie's example, Iranian Kurds, Iraqi Kurds, Eritreans, Ethiopians, Sudanese, um, Afghans. You will find in Britain thriving communities for all of those nationalities in a way that you wouldn't let's perhaps let's say certainly in Poland you might in Germany might in France you might have family in the United Kingdom certainly if the French were here they would point out that more migrants settle in France than settle in the UK I think they get rather irritated with this idea that basically migrants are, are flying across France in an effort to get on some sort of virtual motorway to the UK. That isn't true. The numbers coming into the UK are smaller than those who settle in France. And Sophie, I mean, listening to your remarkable eyewitness testimony, I mean, it strikes me that the main deterrent to people attempting this perilous journey is actually going to be the weather. That's the only deterrent, weather and funds, really, if they've got the money and they've made the right connections, then they wait. They arrive in the camps along the the northern French coast and they wait for the nod. And that is, one, when the weather's good, and two, when the people traffickers have managed to source a boat because with a huge rush and good weather, calm seas over the summer, those boats only go one way. So um, once they're gone, they're gone and they have to source new ones. And we know um, from a recent Sky News investigation that those boats are being bought and stolen, not just in France, but in neighbouring countries, in Belgium, in the Netherlands and further west in France as well. And we've heard lots of stories from people across France of various boating equipment that's been stolen, life jackets, radios as well. If you have the will, if you have the money and the weather's good, then the crossings will happen and they'll continue to happen. 
what we we do know from the migrants we've spoken to over the last few months or even the last couple of years is that what tends to happen is it kind of starts in early spring, finishes early autumn in terms of crossings at sea. And those who have nowhere to go once they're in Calais will stay there and then they'll try and get on lorries again. That's the the only option for them to try and get across in the winter. And unfortunately, the last few weeks have been quite tragic for many of those who've tried. Last week, uh, a 16-year-old Sudanese migrant was found dead in an industrial estate in Calais after trying to get on a lorry, um, which was slow moving. And he was killed as a result of that. And about a month ago, another migrant was killed in a lay-by on a motorway attempting to cross the lanes to get onto a lorry. So neither option is safe, but they will continue to to use either one of those options to, to get to the UK. Following our team's reporting, the British government responded to the French Interior Minister's claim that the UK had not paid any of the £54 million promised to help tackle the crossings crisis. The business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, insisted the UK was working very effectively with France, as ministers blamed the administrative process for a delay in the payment. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, had recently threatened to withhold funding unless more people were stopped from reaching UK shores. As if to underline the point, as one group left, another arrived, around 70 in the space of three hours, when some are willing to risk everything to reach these shores the crossings will be very difficult to stop. My thanks to Sophie, Adam and to you for listening to the Sky News Daily podcast hosted by me, Dermot Murnahan. This edition was produced by Annie Joyce and you can watch reports from Adam and our correspondents on the migrants' crisis on the Sky News YouTube channel. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you'll find plenty more like it where you found this one. And we'd love a review while you're there. The climate crisis can be an overwhelming and emotional conversation. We will not let you get away with this. But it isn't just about cutting carbon emissions or reporting on disasters. On Sky News Climatecast, we'll examine the big issues in depth with scientists, policymakers and activists. Every week, we'll highlight how small changes can make a big difference as we look for solutions to climate change problems. Sky News Climatecast. Listen, follow, subscribe. episode please leave us a review on itunes
Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.